Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt here in Washington. James is out in the Shenandoah. We're being very safe. We are proud partners, as always, with the Sign Institute at American University. We have another great guest this week, General John Allen. But first, please subscribe to 2020 Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. James, how are things going out there in the Shenandoah? You know, Albert, it's, it's, it's a little cool today, but it's just so beautiful out here. I mean, it's blue sky and it's it's springtime. Louisiana was springtime in late February. So I'm, I'm pretty isolated, but God, compared to what people are going through, if anybody ever catches me complaining, just slap the crap out of me. Well, I know. I feel the same way, and I complain sometimes, and I feel ashamed when I do, because you think of the, you know, as you say, the uh, incredible hardship that some people are enduring, not to mention the, you know, the threat of the virus. And yeah, I'm here in, you know, high above Washington, D.C. in a nice place and can go out and take a walk and walk around AU, as a matter of fact. But um, uh, and it's uh, we have lots to do. But man, what some people are going through is just unbelievable. Uh, and we can talk later about some of the things that politicians are doing. We sure can. But, uh, you know, you and I have a lot to be grateful for. And yeah. I tell you what I do. I, I run. I usually, I've been running since August 1st, 1981. And I, I would say I average 34 minutes a day, just roughly, maybe a little bit less. I, since this started, I'm averaging more like 44 minutes a day. And it doesn't, but I don't do it anything all day. I just sit down where normally I'd be going to an airport or going to meetings or, you know, run around going to restaurants or whatever the hell you do with your life or going to class and teaching and you know now i just sit in my chair and last night we had my class and i just sat sat in my chair because you don't move uh reflecting the fact that i'm two years older than you james i spend about about the same amount of time but i'm walking now rather than running uh i little- love people that are older than me ain't many <laughs> <laughs> but uh you have to get out. i wear a mask the whole time uh, and I tell you, this is a, a, a certainly a very unique area, Northwest Washington, around American University. But people, when you people are walking down the sidewalk, everybody gets on the side. Um, I think there is a real. I have not seen anyone out there walking and running that doesn't have a mask on. Well, yeah, because you live in Northwest Washington, which is exactly you know probably one of the ten most educated zip codes in the United States. <laughs> you know, I mean that that, that that's pretty typical of. But I got to say, I'm out here in the Shenandoah Valley, which is, you know, really red. It, 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 this is not, the, I, I don't, I, maybe they voted for Roosevelt in 32. They did, this is a Republican county a, a long time before civil rights. I mean, anything like, you know, some county Alabama change. Uh, and I got to say, for the most part, I noticed people out here have been pretty responsible. And there, there's a buster out in Harrisonburg at JMU. And it it, 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 it it's kind of refreshing. Well, some of it has to do with leadership, too. I think Governor Northam has done a pretty good job on this. And in, in New York, uh, even in some really difficult areas uh, with the uh, forceful presence of Governor Cuomo, uh, there is a sense that, that people are really taking this seriously. There are always exceptions. But uh, I, I, I think... To the extent possible, the American public really needs to be commended for how they're responding to something that's unbelievable. Hey, I want to give a shout out to my governor, John Bell Edwards. Our, our infection rate is that the drop 
I mean, look what hit us was awful. But but I got to tell you, the drop is 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 impressive. It's impressive. I mean, and I'm just going off a little bit off the top of my head. But a couple of weeks ago, we were getting like 2,000 new infections a day. Now, uh, yesterday, I think we were under 400. Now, the, the deaths are, are, are gut wrenching, but you, you try to keep in mind that that's a kind of a 14 day delay. So hopefully, we'll we'll start seeing some improvements. But people have responded and stayed home. But for and, and you ought to be out here telling people. Look, it's starting to work. Let's keep the ball rolling, as opposed to the foolishness that we hear. Well, that's true. It is starting to work. Uh, of course, the great fear is it comes back, but we can we can get into that uh, later. But no, it is, and I think it's true here. It's true around the world. Korea, Germany, uh, that have had success stories. Uh, Taiwan, uh, they have they have had really strict social distancing, stay at home, uh, and the virus doesn't go away. But uh, their numbers certainly look a lot more impressive in some other places. Uh, James, our guest today uh, is General John Allen, decorated Marine, former commander, NATO Central Command, Afghanistan, and now the president of the Brookings Institution. John Allen, we know how busy these days are, and we cannot tell you how much we appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Al. James, it's great to be with you all. General, this pandemic poses it would seem special problems for the military. Uh, what 1.3 million uh, active duty members? Uh, social distancing is kind of antithetical to the whole to the military culture. Uh, close quarters. But Bro- Brookings, your institution, released a report this morning that said military experts uh, really think that this is challenging but manageable for the American military. Tell us, tell us how and why. Well, I think that the. Uh the considerations uh, within each particular service will be different uh, by virtue of the uniqueness of their missions. But the, the, the idea of social distancing, the uh, continuation of distance training, uh, the way in which uh, we'll accomplish the mission, uh, again, unique to the particular services, I think gives us the opportunity still to be uh, combat effective. And it's very important uh, to understand as well that uh, you know, these troops are very well trained already, uh, and we've had to take some immediate measures uh, within the services to uh, to provide for that social distancing to to get the uh, nature of the uh, of the virus under control. But I think, uh, in, on the whole, that has worked. Uh, and in the meantime, the services have uh, have undertaken the kinds of contingency planning necessary to be able to both sustain the force in its operational commitments but also to train the force. And training the force is going to be the challenge, I think, in the context of, of schools, uh, recurring training, and so on. But uh, these are all challenges that we faced before, uh, not like this, but uh, we are able to rise to the unknown. We have great leadership within the services. The kids are very well trained. Uh, and I know that almost from the moment this started, uh, from the Secretary of Defense down through the service chiefs and uh, down to the leadership at the various services, they've been thinking about how to uh, turn this potential challenge into into something that can uh, not impinge dramatically on our combat readiness. Well, the American military certainly does have a uh, a long track record of of rising to the occasion. You mentioned different uh, branches having having a, you know affecting different branches different ways. It, it would seem to me as a layperson that the greatest challenge perhaps could be for the Navy, particularly when they're at sea. Uh, and we saw in the USS Roosevelt. Uh, 
uh, the terrible tragedy there. I think Captain, my view is Captain Crozier was treated unfairly. You may, you may take issue with that, but, but the Navy does face special, uh, problem. We, we usually have what, 50 ships at sea, uh, normally. Uh, we have 297 ships in the active service. And right now there are about 90 ships at sea. And as you may be aware, there are a large number uh, that are uh, reporting coronavirus uh, in the crew complements, but all of those are in port uh, or in maintenance. So it's, we don't have a ship at sea right now uh, with, a, with a corona signature on board. And I'm sure the Navy is watching that very carefully. With regard to uh, Captain Crozier, look, this is a, this is a difficult moment. Um, it was a very unfortunate situation. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm very happy that the Navy is investigating it uh, from two perspectives. One is how the infection got into the crew to begin with. And second, how it was handled. And we ended up in a very, I think, unfortunate situation where the ship's captain felt uh, sufficiently isolated in the needs of his sense of the needs of the service to support him, that he writes this memo and uh, shotguns it out over email uh, with details uh, about the ship's readiness, et cetera, shotguns this out across email to a whole variety of people not in his chain of command. So, the, you know, Crozier is a pretty smart guy. He's been around a long time, a very experienced uh, leader. Uh, and the frustration he must have felt uh, that uh, he wasn't getting the support he needed uh, brought him to the point where he felt he needed to take this step. Uh, the acting secretary of the Navy on the other side, the other end, uh, I think felt that uh, he didn't have a clear picture of what was going on uh, on the Roosevelt. And uh, uh, to include having given his phone number, I understand, to the ship's captain, if he needed anything to call him. <clears throat> and uh, out of frustration, he relieves it. Uh, frustration with the uh, the issuance of the uh, uh, the email and the memo in the sense that uh, having done that uh, caused a loss of confidence. I don't want to get into the the details about it, but uh, you know we have a secretary of the Navy on the one end and a captain on the other end, both of them feeling isolated from the reality of the situation. I, I hope the investigation looks at everybody in in the middle uh, to see how this breakdown of information could have occurred where this really extraordinary event, uh, where an acting secretary relieves a, a, a serving commanding officer of, a, of, a, of one of our premier ships, the Teddy Roosevelt, an uh, aircraft carrier, uh, how that could have happened and uh, the intervening chain of command seemed to, uh, at least in the minds of those two people, seemed to be uh, uh, not part of the issue. So I, I'm, I'm sure that people would take issue with that. I'm, the Navy's very, very good in its support for its captains at sea. Uh, but we have this frustrating issue, and I think the investigation will find out. Let's hope so. James. So, so General is Wikipedia correct that you were the first Marine to be the superintendent of the Naval Academy? I was the first Marine to be commandant at the Naval Academy. Commandant. I'm sorry, I'm using all my, my daddy was in the Army. I was in the Marines. I never got high enough to know what the, <laughs> the proper nomenclature was. But for the moment, you know, so the new, our new commandant, has sort of changed, it seems to me, at least according to what I read, is kind of changing the mission of the Marine Corps. It, it, could, could you just speak to what General Berger 
what exactly is he trying to change and how is the mission of the Marine Corps going forward going to be different than it was in the past? Well, a couple of things. First, Dave Berger, who I've known a long time, is, is one of our very best. I mean, we, we could not be happier uh, and better served with that, uh, I'll say, young officer, <laughs> with, that, uh, with that leader uh, leading our Corps today, number one. Number two, uh, we are emerging, sir, as you know, we are emerging from many, many years of being uh, oriented on low-intensity conflict, counterinsurgency operations, uh, counterterrorism operations. Um, and while those missions and that commitment into Iraq and Afghanistan were very important, and the Marine Corps played an extraordinary uh, role alongside the Army and the other services in these two, these two wars, that's not, in fact, the great value that the Marine Corps brings to the country. Uh, the Marine Corps is our nation's force in readiness. You know, we've had previous commandants uh, refer to it as uh, the force that uh, fights the nation's battle, so we don't have to fight a nation's war. Uh, it's the premier force in readiness. It's called the 911 force. And so the Corps is at its best and most relevant when the nation perhaps is least ready uh, for the big war. And I think the realities of uh, what we face now with an emerging China, uh, a more assertive China, uh, a Russia that is clearly, in my mind, a hostile power to the United States, uh, has, uh, has required that General Berger and the service and all the services uh, evaluate uh, the realities of this new era of the potential for peer competition. And he is taking the steps necessary to make sure that the Marine Corps has the capacity to fight in that environment, uh, to fight in an environment in East Asia. Uh, to fight in an environment where we might be called upon to support uh, our allies in NATO. And that requires both a different kind of a mindset uh, and a different kind of equipment set, if you will, uh, and to some extent, a different organization, which he has been uh, working on, uh, to be able to shoulder that uh, responsibility in the aftermath of so many years of being organized uh, and uh, organized and equipped in many respects uh, for the counterinsurgency mission. So I applaud what he's doing. Uh, you know, anytime you cut uh, a, a unit in the Marine Corps, as you well know, Marines take a lot of pride in their battle color uh, and the battle colors of their specific units. And so there's a lot of attachment to battalions and to squadrons and to logistics elements. And when you decommission one of those in order to make the force more lean or to uh, be able to afford uh, modernized equipment. Uh, that sometimes seems to go down hard, but I think uh, uh, General Berger has taken the Corps in the right direction. So, so General, NATO, I mean, just given your entire background, we'll go through it. The world is always full of mischief. And right now we're particularly in, in the middle of this pandemic and we're obsessed with this. But it seems to me, I'm just reading that the mischief factor is, is, is kind of higher than normal. If you look at North Korea, we not exactly sure what's going on there. China seems to be getting increasingly aggressive in the South China Sea. I saw where a Russian, Russian plane came within 25 yards of one of our carrier aircraft in the Mediterranean. Is there some alert, high alert in the senior military, you think, that, that saying we, we, we are on, we've got to be an enhanced alert here, that 
the fact that we're going through this might give our adversaries of the idea that they can they can get away with more than normally would? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would be, well, I'm not involved necessarily uh, or even usually in the moment-to-moment considerations of things going on in the Pentagon. I would be shocked if uh, General Milley as the chairman and the service chiefs as the uh, joint chiefs uh, and as our uh, operational, if you will, warfighting commanders uh, in the uh, CENTCOM and in uh, Indo-Pacific Command, et cetera, if they are not uh, paying full attention uh, to what might be considered by our adversaries and, and our enemies uh, opportunities to uh, take advantage of this moment of national distraction. And I, I, I would be very clear uh, with your listeners that you know the United States is going through some really tough moments. Uh, the whole population is affected for all intents and purposes. Our our economy is uh, in very serious trouble right now, and we've got thousands who have tragically passed away. Many who are sick. Many more will discover who are sick, and this may give uh, our opponents and those who are uh, seeking to to achieve something on the back of this crisis. This may give them a sense that now is their moment. And I would simply say a couple of things. Uh, first, that we're all gonna come out of this eventually. And the strong men around the world who, who sought or who thought they could leverage this to try to roll back uh, the values that we stand for and the principles of democracy that uh, we've all been prepared uh, to lay our lives on the line to defend, whether it's American democracy or those of our allies, uh, they better get ready because when this is all over, uh, we're gonna turn our attention on them. And for those who wanna seek military advantage right now, they better be very, very careful because we still have great commanders in place. We still have very high readiness of our forces uh, and our troops are very well trained, whether they're flying off a carrier deck uh, or they're uh, on an amphibious, uh, in an amphibious strike group, or they're part of the United States Army in a standing force uh, in Europe or uh, on the Korean Peninsula, they they better not uh, underestimate both the uh, readiness of our forces to react, but also the willingness of the United States to take uh, action as is necessary uh, to prevent them from leveraging this moment to our disadvantage. That would be a huge miscalculation on their part. General, let me just add to, to James's question. Uh, among the many, many important posts you've held for a while, you were uh, in charge of the anti-ISIS uh, effort uh, in the Obama administration. What, what, just, just if you were there now, what would you be looking for, worried about, preparing as far as as far as terrorists around the world, different than a state like Korea or Russia? But how about how about the terrorist threat? Al, that's a great question. That that threat is never going to go away. And uh, happily, you know, we have organizations like the U.S. Special Operations Command uh, tied in very closely with our geographic commands. And they're watching this jihadist threat uh, very, very carefully around the world. Uh, and as you undoubtedly know, uh, when this, is, this so-called Islamic State exploded onto the world stage, it took three forms. Uh, the, when I took over the helping out the president with the global coalition, it was mostly a physical form in two countries, in uh, Iraq and Syria, and we called that uh, core ISIS. Uh, but then it took on two other forms. One was a provincial ISIS, which meant uh, 
standing jihadist organizations around the world put their hands in the air and said, we want to join the caliphate. And they did. Uh, that's like Boko Haram in Africa and uh, Ansar al-Sharia in, uh, in Libya and uh, Abu Sayyaf in uh, the Philippines and, and the Khorasan in uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So many of these organizations joined the caliphate and they're still out there. And they're still pretty virulent, even though in large form, uh, the core ISIS was defeated in, in a military sense in Iraq and Syria. There are still large numbers of them that are in the population and they'll surface from time to time as suicide bombers. And then there's a third form of this group, uh, which is on the internet. And they're still recruiting. Uh, they're still moving around the planet. They're still harboring or, or harnessing uh, the capabilities of the jihadist movements uh, for terrorist purposes. So we would be, first we'd be negligent if we took our eye off this organization, and I know we haven't. Uh, U.S. Special Operations Command, in conjunction with our uh, really formidable intelligence services, uh, is keeping a very close eye on these folks um, with the idea of not giving them an opening during this moment of uh, crisis around the world, not giving them a moment uh, where they can uh, either accomplish some major terrorist attack or uh, improve their position vis-a-vis -vis our allies and the United States. So ISIS is still out there, and it will be for a while, but I think we got a, a pretty good eye on those guys. This is a different challenge, but building on James's other question, China. Uh, China clearly uh, deceived, lied about the coronavirus uh, in the beginning. Uh, they have been they've come under great fire from President Trump now. On the other hand, they supply a lot of our uh, medical uh, equipment here. Uh, they have uh, pretty smart scientists over there. They may be developing a vaccine as quickly as we are. It's a really difficult relationship under any circumstances. But how would you deal? How would you recommend we deal with China these days? Well, as your question uh, implies, it is a difficult uh, relationship. Um, you know, we at Brookings talk about uh, the relationship with China perhaps having several different forms. Uh, one is there will be occasions, there will be areas where we can find useful opportunity to cooperate with each other. Uh, here is one of them, and I'll come back to a couple more in a few minutes. Uh, another is that uh, with respect to the relationship, we should expect that we're going to compete with China. You know, they have emerged with what they would believe, and there are people in the world who concur in this, have a, an alternative model to what we, the United States, but more broadly, the democracies, uh, what we bring to the table. And that alternative model is what we would call authoritarian capitalism. It, it isn't democratic capitalism, it's authoritarian capitalism. It's very different, but it is appealing to certain pe people in the world. So in that context, we're gonna compete. We're gonna compete with our values, we're gonna compete, compete with our principles, we're gonna compete with our systems of government, and we're gonna compete in our systems of, uh, of our economies, capitalism versus authoritarian cap capitalism. And that competition can come in several different forms. Uh, it can come in useful competition where we benefit from being better and try to compete in a way that we are better, uh, or it can come in a form that could mature into confrontation. And sadly, uh, in this administration, uh, where there probably were many occasions where we could have competed usefully, uh, both within the array of the democracies in the world, what I call the community of democracies, 
we have in some some respects uh, created just a perpetual confrontation with the Chinese. Um, I don't agree that that needs to be where we should be. I think that we should be seeking uh, right now an opportunity to harvest uh, a the outcome of cooperation to get after COVID. And you couldn't be more right, uh, Al. Uh, the whole issue associated with transparency uh, and truth-telling with respect to the extent of the virus and the measures that were taken ultimately in a very authoritarian state to control it, we, we have very little visibility into that. As it turns out over time, it's pretty grim and pretty ugly. But as you say, as you ac accurately say, they got a big chunk of the supply chain. They also have a lot of recent experience. We ran recently at Brookings a, uh, 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 a webinar, if you will, where we had public health officials from China, South Korea, Japan, and Singapore, along with the United States. And we talked about lessons learned. And that struck me as a moment when people of goodwill, and these were all uh, public health officials and doctors, some of whom had been on the, on the front lines in Wuhan, this struck me as a moment when the right kind of cooperation for the right kinds of reasons could in fact advance our capacity globally to deal with this issue. But if confrontation and name calling and blaming seems to define the relationship now, look, this is, this is an enormous amount of wasted energy that could go to uh, ultimately solving uh, one of the greatest crises we've ever faced. You know, today, right now, uh, we have well over 2 million people around the planet uh, who are infected. Uh, the United States has over 800,000 going to 900,000 who are infected. We've had uh, more than 45,000 deaths. The deaths are going to continue around the, uh, around the uh, world. The infection rate is going to probably increase over time. If we can't bring together the uh, aggregate capability of the medical uh, prowess of the United States, the community of democracies in China to get after this, if we're trying to do this separately or in competition, or we're separated over, uh, over uh, uh, negative confrontation, this is going to go on for much longer than it has to. And if the Chinese uh, find themselves near a, a vaccine, we ought to be finding out why. We ought to see if there's some, something that we can learn from th what they're doing. Uh, on the other side of the coin, we're doing very well, I think, in uh, our progress towards therapeutics. And uh, we ought to be sharing that information. Here is a moment where if we do the cooperation right, the outcome of our two countries together on behalf of the global democracies and the population more broadly in the world, the outcome uh, could be better for all of us. But if this moment is defined by confrontation and blaming, et cetera, the outcome uh, and our emergence from this crisis will just perpetuate uh, the bitterness that has grown uh, between our two countries. So, so Joe, I, I understand we're global and you're a global guy, and NATO and everything else, and, but once you're an enlisted guy, you're always an enlisted guy. And in September, I went to Paris Island and General Flynn gave, had Colonel Williamson give me and my wife the, the real backdoor tour. I mean, there wasn't much that we wanted to see that we didn't see. And I was just struck. But two things that struck me. Number one is there's this old coach at old Marine Corps about, oh, it's gotten soft and, you know, it was tougher when we were back there. And they used to beat the crap out of us. And I, I was talking to the colonel, 
And he says, if anybody touches one of these recruits, they're gone. But, but it also struck me that these young people's training is 10 times better than the training that we got. I mean, it was anything but soft. But the Marine Corps has moved away from that kind of thing, it, uh, hasn't it? Is that, is, that, is that true, or was I getting the, the, the spin from the higher-ups there? No, you, you've got the true scoop, sir. Um, look, there's two kinds of discipline uh, in, a, in a military unit, and, and I won't speak for the other services. You and I both know the Corps well. We consider ourselves to be elite in many ways. At recruit training, which is the first moment for the regimentation of our young Marines, they're not even Marines yet, they're called recruits, uh, there has to be a some period of time of imposed discipline. Um, and I was enlisted, I just passed my 49th anniversary of when I put my hand in the air when I was 17 and enlisted. Um, recruit training in those days typically did much more uh, on the idea of imposed discipline than it did on what we really need for our troops to be, and that is self-discipline. Self-disciplined within the context of the culture of their services, self-disciplined in the context of embracing a set of moral values that makes them a part of something bigger than themselves, which most of them want to be anyway, uh, not just to be something bigger than themselves, but be willing be willing because of the oath they swear to give their life for these principles, for this constitution and for our people. So many years ago, much of our recruit training tended to orient uh, on imposed discipline. And that would play out where if it, there wasn't perfect uh, response or uh, troops didn't seem to get uh, get the, the, the idea of right, left, right, um, you know, you get a good, a good hard knock from the uh, drill instructor or the senior. Uh, we don't need to do that anymore. In fact, our drill instructors, uh, certainly in the Marine Corps, they live the very finest values that a recruit would ever want. And so not only is the recruit uh, transitioning through imposed discipline, but by virtue of the example being set by the drill instructor, in every way, PTing with them, uh, conducting physical training with them, uh, leading through the difficult moments, setting an example with respect to professionalism and a sense of Marine Corps history, et cetera, and the dedication of a Marine to the Corps, they transition not from imposed discipline, not from an environment solely of imposed discipline, but to an environment of self-discipline, where just, just the name Marine carries with it an, a, a, an awesome, nearly spiritual obligation to our service and to the elite nature of who we are to be self-disciplined, not just in how we wear the uniform, but self-disciplined in our willingness to be part of an organization bigger than ourselves and even spend our lives, if necessary, in defense of our country. They used to beat us up pretty good in recruit training. We don't need Yeah, I, I was really impressed. I mean, I'm, I, I can tell somebody in formation and you know, how well they march it. I'm not that stupid. And I mean, they, they struck me as really being well-trained and, and not easy. I mean, it wasn't easy. I mean, they, you know, they were out there running and, you know, high pogey bait, or, you know what I mean? They were calling cadence and everything like it was. But, and I, I love your distinction between imposed discipline and self-discipline. 
But I, I, I don't think our young people—the fact that we're not beating them up or punching them, or, you know, sticking their head down the, you know, the toilet of what they used to do. Also, you know, pin pricking your finger if you. Yep. 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 Pulling on a trigger too far, too hard. <laughs> you, you remember that? And yeah. Beating you with the rifle butt if you, if you're anticipating the shot. But I think that I, I think they're shooting straight and and TT and you know, close order drill. I, I think they're better than we ever had. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you'd probably agree with this too. And that is if we have built a Marine by beating that person, that's a pretty thin veneer that isn't going to stand up very well in combat. You know, we want that individual to stand up in combat, not only because she or he is well-trained and in superb physical condition, but because in their soul, they have disciplined themselves to go into this fight for whatever the outcome may be. That's a different outcome than if we're imposing discipline constantly and reinforcing it by physical abuse. Physical abuse has no place in an elite unit. General, I could listen to this conversation between two Marines of somewhat different <laughs> rank uh, forever. It's but, saying but right we now have, with civilians. We, we have promised. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> We have we have promised you we won't keep you too long. Let me just try, you know, one more quick question. Did you look around which global leaders have really impressed you in this pandemic? Because it is a global uh, issue. Is there anyone you say, boy, that's that's leadership? Well, I think Angela Merkel uh, once again impresses me. Uh, President Tsai in uh, Taiwan. Uh, she's done very well. Uh, President Moon. In uh, South Korea, he's done well. I know uh, Prime Minister Abe uh, has been trying to get his hands around uh, the crisis in Japan with some uh, difficulties, but I, I think he's uh, he's on the field. Uh, in in Europe, uh, there have been some challenges, uh, but again, uh, between I think President Macron, uh, who is putting some real resources into this, and and uh, Angela Merkel, uh, we have seen some some very powerful examples of individuals who stand up, uh, who are leading from the front at a moral level, and who have the capacity to see the strategy that is necessary for the nation to come together in a positive sense, led from the front by the chief executive or the commander in chief or the president or the prime minister, whoever that person is, and then assist the people and the political subdivisions of that country to come together. That's not what's happening here, but I'll tell you, overseas, we've, we've got some real examples that we can emulate. I wish we could follow them. Listen, this has been so enlightening. I don't like to leave on a, on a downer note, but I feel I have to ask you this because you did run operations in Afghanistan uh, for a while. I, I think there's a general consensus that Iraq uh, was a disaster. It didn't succeed. Is that where we're headed in Afghanistan now, too? Yeah, if we're not careful, we could. Um, you know, I've expressed myself very publicly that the idea that we would uh, exclude the Afghan government from our negotiations with the Taliban, I think, was a mistake. Uh, I think the outcome of the uh, negotiations, where we made a number of explicit commitments and the Taliban basically gave us notional commitments, I think that was a mistake. Uh, the idea that... Uh, uh, we would set the conditions through our negotiations that the Afghans had to release Taliban detainees. I think that was a mistake. 
Um, you know, I had a big issue with Hamid Karzai over detainees. And these they weren't detained because they just happened to be walking down the street. They were detained because they were killing Afghans and killing my troops. Nothing's changed. And for us to negotiate away uh, Ashraf Ghani, the president, Ashraf Ghani's prerogatives with respect uh, to releasing those detainees, uh, I think was a huge error on our part. But I'll tell you, the one issue that really gets in my craw, and I've heard American officials say, well, we'll leave this to the Afghans once the Afghan government and the Taliban sit down to have the negotiations, is why would we negotiate away Ashraf Ghani's prerogatives with respect to detainees and not establish, and on behalf of the, of the future of Afghanistan, an expectation for how women would be treated in that country. I got a lot of time on the ground, and I know what the Taliban have done to women and what they will do to women. And for us to have walked away from the opportunity for us to establish an international standard that should set the conditions ultimately for the role of women in the Afghan society in, a, in an environment where the Taliban and the Afghan government share power in some form or another, I think was, uh, was, was dereliction on our part. General Allen, uh, this has really been fascinating. We could go on for a long time, but I know you have a lot of work to do at Brookings uh, these days. But thank you, really. Uh, uh, this has been very edifying. And to get you and Corporate Carville together uh, is really a, a, an extra treat. <laughs> I hope we do it again. Temperify, sir. Temperify. Thanks, Al. Take care, John. Bye. Wow. <laughs> Wow. He is Why isn't that guy running the whole goddamn response? I mean, just to, if, if any... I'll give you, I'll give you a two-word answer. I'll give you a two-word answer. Donald Trump. I, I'm, but, but I'm serious. Uh, I, you're right. like that, if they ran this thing, if, if it, and, and Trump could have been at every daily briefing, he could have had his office next door to him, right? But it, and when you listen to that, it just breaks your heart. And, and there are other people like him. And, and we got this shit. I mean, it just like it, it didn't have to be this way. And it's just so sad. I'm just, I'm, it just makes me so freaking angry. Well, James. It really didn't. You're, 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 you're absolutely right. And uh, the only answer, there's only one answer, uh, and that is... Uh, that uh, there's a change of government in nine months because uh, he, he is not going to change. You know, I, I, if some people would have done what Captain Crozier would have done. If, if these people would have come en masse and threatened to resign, the only power they had, it just, you, 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 you just say, God, it's, and it's, you know, he's, he's, there are other people like that in the country. And we got this. It's not even a half-ass operation. It's just, it's not. It's, we got Jared. It's we so got Jared Kushner. I mean, it's so unbelievable. You could sad. have had John Allen, and we have Jared Kushner. You're right. You're absolutely right. Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner lasts two minutes in Paris Island. You, you, I mean, I don't talk about him. I mean, you talk about a guy that's soft. Oh, uh, James. Let's switch topics for a minute and go back to politics. Um, you were very skeptical of Joe Biden's campaign last year, as I was, and many were. He then, uh, with Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, uh, I kind of think shocked the political world, uh, and within a matter of days, really, was the obvious nominee. 
When you look at that Biden campaign today, how do you feel? Well, first of all, I, I don't, don't feel much different about the Biden campaign. I, I, I think that the Democrats were so intent, and correctly so, on defeating Trump. And I think that they recognized, maybe with some help of others, in February that Bernie Sanders, if we went to Milwaukee, would split party, that we were just doing nothing but giving Trump a chance to win re-election, which he shouldn't have a chance. And let me give Vice President Biden some credit here. First of all, he had a career. People knew who he was. He had relationships. And he did a good job on the debate before the South Carolina primary. But when Congressman Clyburn dropped the hammer, this went from him winning South Carolina by six or seven points to winning by 30, which set off a chain reaction. There was no strategic brilliance there. It was, it was Democrats being scared to death in, in Congressman Clyburn with, with so much credibility in his home state said, this is the guy. Thank God he did that. So he's had it wrapped up now for six weeks. So take a look at him now. How are they, how are they handling this now? Well, well I, I'm not, the, the way they're publicly handling this, I, I don't, I think they're doing fine. But what's going on internally? So then we get a story. And, and this is, of course, we love this in Washington because we're all like the inside baseball stories. So they get a story where there's all this conflict among these super PACs. And then we get a story in Politico with like 10 people talking to them about an argument as to whether they use Bloomberg's data or somebody else's data. And it just strikes me from a distance that these are people who think they're going to win the election and trying to win, and trying to make money. And that is the wrong Imperative. And, and by the way, Congressman Clyburn is not happy about this. He's not happy about the super And a lot of people are not happy about this. Right. And I don't think that Biden is part of this, but they got to put somebody in there in, in, pre the, in the old Marine Corps. People got to start slamming people against the bulkheads here and telling people to shut up. You're going to make plenty of money after the election. These people look like they're trying to make money during the election. If they, if they don't think they can make money after the election, come to my house. But this, this I, and look, they're probably going to win. And Albert, you know this better than anybody. If, if you win by 287 electoral votes, you're the president. You're probably going to pick up a couple, of, maybe three Senate seats. All right. If you win by 387 electoral votes, then you're just not going to win you're going to pick up seven, seven Senate seats. And the whole world is different. And it just seems to me like they're all anticipating victory, which I, th I think they're going to win. I've, I've been very open and clear about that. But how you win and how much you win by matters profoundly. Oh, it so does. No, no one cares who gets a technology contract or who a super PAC is favored. But when a campaign is mirrored down in that kind of division, it is not thinking about winning, but thinking about how to make money. You're not going to do as well. No, you're absolutely right. And you're that that two eighty seven and three eighty seven. It's not just a, you know an extra four or five senators and probably ten or fifteen house members. It's 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 what you can do with an agenda that those, those critical first six months. If you win a big election, right. you can do a lot in two thousand twenty one. If you win a squeaker, uh, you you are you are much more limited. So it's 
you're, you're right. It's absolutely critical. But James, so there's this infighting. So what do you do about it? You were part of a Clinton team that, that had infighting in early 1992 also, and then you finally straighten it out. What should they do now? Well, I mean, what happened in the Clinton campaign was, was, was fortunate because it got so dysfunctional that actually everybody had a meeting and said, James, you got to do this. So I, I, I started out with the authority of an election. I was elected and they said, OK, we'll go, you know, talk to the governor and then talk to Mrs. Clinton. And it, it, that that worked out. But either they if they don't do it internally, then, you know, Congressman Clyburn and Speaker Pelosi right, have got to walk in and say, sir, this is the person that needs to have the overall authority. Maybe it's somebody in the campaign. I don't know. But once that is established, then at that point, and, and what, it, what, it, what it means is, is that in the meeting that Biden has to look at the person, has, has to ask him the most, to know that this person, whoever she or he or whatever that pronoun is, has the authority and confidence of the, of the candidate. Once you do that, you can do what you want. You can do what you want. But I don't have any sense, and in, in, I'm not just talking about what I'm reading, I'm, I'm talking about what I'm hearing. I, th this is some kind of a babble where everybody is trying to angle to get their friends a contract. And this shit is not going to work in this country right now. And I, I mean, I really say this very clearly. We had so little of that in 92. I mean, really had very little of it. It, it wasn't part of our culture. The, I, I think some of it, you know, people make fun of this. I mean, no one cares who your campaign manager is. I understand that. No one cares where your headquarters is. I understand that. But... You know they can't. They ought to move the goddamn thing to Wilmington, all right, and get out of this backbiting and, and this this crap that you're seeing in Washington. I'm serious. Well, I, no, I, I, do, I think I, I think do. they are in Philadelphia, aren't they? I mean, I, I don't know what what going to going what uh, 25 miles south. They should be in Dover or somewhere like that. Yeah, in the middle of nowhere. Well, I, I, you know, I I think you've summed it up you know, uh, aptly, uh, it's not, I, I disagree with those people who say, geez, he ought to be out doing more. I mean, what can you do? You can't be out doing more. What's he doing do? just fine. What's he going to do? You're right. I, I mean, I, I, I totally agree, but, but how that campaign functions, this is what they're doing now is going to affect what they're able to do in September and October. So that's really critical. Right. And they're, they're not raising that much money. It's not like $47 million. I mean, it's, it, they need to, you know, somebody needs to go through there with, with a, like a, a, a General Allen, and with a swift right foot and kick some people in the ass. There's too much at stake here. There's too much at stake for this, this kind of leaking, you know. And I have no idea what's the best technology platform. I have no idea. You know, all these super PACs in Washington all hate each other. But I'm involved with one, so, so everybody... Stop. I know every asshole listening to this is going to point out that James is associated with American Bridge. Okay, I am. Of course I am. Uh, but I, don't, I think we do great work. I don't think we're the only one. But Well, I'm not a, I'm not associated with any, and we don't have any assholes no, I, that listen somebody, to this. I don't somebody think. will but, tell uh, somebody, but I'm not. Uh, I'm glad. I'm, again, you're... you know, they, they, need, they need to do a little bit like the Marine Corps. It, you know, you need somebody to tell you what to do, and then you go out and do it. All right, let's talk about one decision that they have to make. We hope they'll make it 
capably, uh, and they don't have to make it right now, but they're starting, and that is his running mate. I think that 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 choice can be exactly the impact on that choice can be exaggerated. It's a little bit like uh, the oath and medicine do no harm, but uh, it also will say something about where we are. And I think Joe Biden, being seventy eight years old, people may pay slightly more attention to uh, who he picks as a running mate. He's going to pick a woman. Uh, you have any any recommendations for either the process, what they ought to think about, or who they ought to choose? My idea is this. If there's one person that, first of all, I, I, I be clear, it's got to be somebody that you think has the ability to be president if, 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 if something happens, or at least at a minimum, you think that they're a really quick learner and that they can really develop into it. Okay, so anybody that can't fit those two criteria, even I, the most political animal in the world, would say, no, nah, you can't do that, all right? However, if there are two people or three people that fit that criteria, and you, it may be faulty reasoning, but you conclude that one of them gives you a 1% better chance to win the election, pick that person. Pick that person. Because the most important thing you got to do is win. Now, your calculation may be wrong. If I, if I talk to some uh, a Senate candidate in North Carolina, they may say, hey, we need to pick Michelle Obama, who I don't even know if she wants to be vice But has anybody asked, asked her, do, do you want to be vice president? I, I think it would be a great choice, but everything she said in the past would suggest the answer is, is, is Sherman-esque. Absolutely no. Right. So, so it's, just, it's, just, it's just all that is – to me, it is it, a lot of things. people just put a name out because it, it's obviously glamorous and it's obviously everything, and the press would love it. But but if, the, you don't pick somebody that don't want the job. That's not going to work very well. So, but but let, let's leave because Michelle Obama is is is, is a special case. Um, you know, maybe they're thinking of somebody. You know, when Al Gore, he wasn't at the kind of top of the list, as I recall. I don't remember. Totally. But but he was at the top of the list in, in, in 92 or what people were speculating about. Uh, I, I think there's, you know, Warren, but but as, tell us what you what you believe the problem with picking Warren is. Because I wanted Warren in 2016. Bad. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't win that fight. I, I still think if I'd have won it, we wouldn't have this darkness, but I can't prove it. Well, she has two great strengths, as you know. She's so damn smart uh, that uh, if I were Mike Pence, I wouldn't even want to get on the stage with her. Uh, but uh, I think the pro- she has one big problem. Namely, she represents a state with a Republican governor. Now, Charlie Baker is a very good guy. He would appoint probably what we call a moderate Republican. But those first three or four months of a new term are critical. And uh, you can't assume you're going to come in with 55 or 56 senators. You have to no. assume it's be something like 50-50, and you can ill afford to lose a senator, and you won't know ahead of time. So I think that's almost a disqualifier for as smart and capable uh, as she would be. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that. I, I'll say one more person who I would take off the list would be Stacey Abrams. The liberals love her. I mean, she's just, she excites people. She ran an incredible race in Georgia last year. She's got a real political future. James, she's never been elected to anything more than a state rep. And I just don't think with a 78-year-old president, you're going to pick someone with that kind of limited experience. So those two, I would say, for different reasons, are off are off the charts. Should be. Well, I mean, okay, so let's say you got 
I mean, this is total speculation. Right. But we we have said it was going to be a woman. So you're in the room, and, and the three final candidates are Senator Klobuchar, Senator Mastos, and Senator Harris. All right? So the argument becomes, look, we need to pick Senator Klobuchar because if we if we carry Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, and Wisconsin, we're almost certain to win the race. Senator Klobuchar outperforms Democrats in, in the Iron Range, in, in, in northern and southwestern Minnesota. She has a connectivity with people like that. She's a former prosecutor. She's an effective United States senator. She ran for president. She knows what the Terpies look like. So somebody says, wait a minute. I agree with all that, but we got to pick Senator Harris. She was a prosecutor. She was attorney general of the largest state, right? She brings in, if we're not going to win this race in, in places that we want to win, like North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Pennsylvania, Michigan, unless we have a really excited African-American electorate, most important part of our party, and they're going to have a hard time because if they attack her, you're going to really stimulate voters, uh, you know, African-American women to vote, which, you know, elected Doug Jones in Alabama. And somebody says, yeah, but what about Senator Mastos? She's qualified, uh, uh, what do you have, uh, Latinx, you know, Nevada, really knows politics, been supported by Harry Reid, probably the most effective inside political figure, modern Democratic Party. She's got experience. She can excite a, a constituency that Trump does much better than people think in, and that's the Latino community. She would represent generational change. I don't know. Every every one of those arguments have hold some water. And, and there's an argument of, of people that well, I don't. I, I just picked these three because, well, first of all, I we had we had to look to female candidates because that's the direction we're going in. And I tried to represent three classes of the party. Somebody may come in, and for all I know, there's a four-star Air Force general who's a woman that you know. Maybe I don't know, but but those are the kind. That's the way the internal debate is going to work. Yeah. Well, I don't want to pick that four-star Air Force general because I don't want to pick someone who hadn't faced voters. Uh, I, I I think that should, I agree. That should I'm, be I'm a just saying, something. Yeah, no, I, I think you. Let me let me let me respond to the three you threw out there. I mean, the one that I would. Uh, take out first would be Klobuchar. I mean, what you say is true, but the Midwestern appeal, James, she finished fifth in Iowa. Uh, I mean, that doesn't suggest that that, I mean, she's certainly very popular in Minnesota, which is going to go blue anyway. So, and, and, and she would probably drive the Bernie people, the, you know, up the wall that have to accept right. it. But, you know, That's, a That's a it, fact. That's it a fact. It had to be a I don't know much about the senator from Nevada. On paper, she looks very interesting and ought to be. I don't, I don't know. And, and and ought to be on list. I think that I have. I, I guess I lean to Senator Harris in the sense that she 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 ran a terrible presidential campaign, no question. But she's she has run some good campaigns. She is smart. She does have some. Uh, experience. And I think the Bernie people don't like her either, but they don't dare criticize the first African-American woman on a national ticket. Uh, that's just him. So, I, you know, of, of that list, that's the one that I would probably find more appealing. 
and I think it's possible. I, I think we agree. You don't want to go to that Air Force general. You might want to, I mean, I'll throw out a wild card. Even someone like Mikey Sherrill, she's only a freshman member of Congress from New Jersey, which is going to go uh, blue anyway, but she is a former Navy helicopter pilot, a prosecutor, an incredibly able, smart politician. I, I think it's open. I think you're, you A, want to do no harm. And if you find that person, it'll bring you the extra percent, take them. All right, James, uh, we've talked uh, with General Allen has been fabulous. As you said, we talked about the Democrats. We, you know, we have to spend two or three minutes talking about our least favorite president. Uh, you know, every time, you know, you think it's not going to get worse. Of course, as we say, time and time again, it gets worse. Uh, he, uh, what, what really, really gets me, though, is here they're going. They're putting out actually rather sensible guidelines about about going back to work, about closing down, and uh, or about opening up rather, uh, and then he goes and just totally, totally demagogues it, brings out that that uh, fervent base of his to protest closings, and really is endangering the health of Americans. And you know, I'm afraid he's just not going to stop. He's not. If you, it's totally. This is all totally predictable, because he's weak politically. And when you're weak politically and you're dependent on one, on one segment of voters who detest expertise, of course, he's having to listen to experts. He, he really doesn't have much of a choice, but he can't act like he's listening to experts. So if you just go on, on this, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but the anti-malarial drug. The amount, I, I don't know how many times it was on Fox and how many times he did that. Because you got to understand his base, and, and, and you, you can't underestimate how destructive Fox is in the modern United States. They detest expertise. They, the expertise, is, what does Rush Limbaugh say? To, the, the four corners of evil academia, uh, the media, the, 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 you know, science and whatever else, right? They've been told that the wisdom of the common rural person supersedes that of every expert in the world. So they, they, he can't admit that there's that, that epidemiologist, that there's an R naught number, all right, that there's a way that viruses are transmitted. They have to keep feeding that. And it worked for them because they had a lot of help, a lot of help, and a freak distribution in 2016, they're addicted to that. It's like a drug they can't get off of. And I think these election, the prediction industry is missing a big thing. I think the public is starting to revolt against this. You can see it. They don't, the, the, the public is not climbing. They understand the, 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 the economic devastation this has caused. But man, they, they understand in some way what these experts are saying. And I think he's caught betwixt and between. I mean, he's, I really do. He's, he's addicted to his base. He can't let it go. He doesn't know any other ways. Primitive. He's going to lose the election. And, it's gonna, if, and if the Biden campaign stops all this petty ass shit they're doing and gets focused on, on winning a big election, then we're going to be fine. 
Well, I think you're right. I mean, the one 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 thing that makes this different than all the other issues where he's been able to bullshit his way around uh, and and gin up a base with uh, actually with you know lies, diversions, deceptions, as Andrew Cuomo said the other day, we know what happens within five, seven days. I mean, we can look at policies and say they're working or they're not working. And we're going to know whether what the Georgia governor is doing, which I think is terribly dangerous, what kind of peril that's going to create or whether that's going to work, which I think is highly unlikely. We can look at the difference between California and Florida. And it goes back to your friend John Barry's book uh, on the great influenza uh, uh, of, of 1918, St. Louis and Philadelphia. We know what works here and to pretend about our guest on our show just just to be clear and we ought to maybe have him back well you look you look at the people that we've had on this show i mean i i'm not being here i mean i think we've given real value in terms of like trying to peek around the corner at what's going on in in you know not just american politics you know i mean think of be like people like jim and deb fallis you know the the kinds of stories that I think that we are, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished so far with this show. And I think we've given the people who subscribe to our podcast some, some insight that maybe is not available anywhere else. And I, I really mean that. Oh, I, I think you're right. Joanne, you'd add Joanne Lippman to that list for sure. Oh, God. And, yeah. uh, and, and boy, I'll tell you, John Allen today, uh, you know, certainly is on our 35, oh. but okay. Listen, uh, this has been a really good show. Stay safe out there, okay? Make sure your kids stay safe. Uh, and everybody, uh, please don't take any risk. Wear a mask. Uh, self-isolate if you have to. Uh, certainly keep social distancing. But I want to thank you for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram and Politics War Room. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We always ask you to be charitable. You can do that in the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. For James Carville, I'm Al Hunt saying we'll talk to you next week. Stay safe. <laughs>